The purpose of Wealth Talk is to educate, inform, and hopefully entertain you on the subject of building your wealth. Wealth Builders recommends you should always take independent financial, tax, or legal advice before making any decisions around your finances. Welcome to episode 67 of Wealth Talk. My name's Christian Rodwell, the Membership Director for Wealth Builders, and I'm joined this morning by our founder, Mr. Kevin Whelan. Hi, Kevin. Hello, Chris. Always a pleasure to talk to you. And we've got an exciting episode today, haven't we? Yeah, we've got a fantastic guest today. It's uh, Mr. Daniel Priestley, the co-founder and CEO of Dent Global. And, uh, you know, Daniel's a great guy. We both really admire the work that he's done. And um, certainly, you know, he's very much at the forefront, I think, of the entrepreneur revolution. In fact, he authored the book of that very title as well. Mm. I mean, I think I resonate particularly with Daniel for for many reasons. And uh, I think both of us would claim in some way to be uh, thought leaders and visionaries. And um, and I think he's got very, very insightful things to say. And as always, when you hear what people have to say, hear the integrity of Daniel here. He's not self-servingly, you know, pushing a message. He's just saying, look, you know, being in business is tough, but if you do it the right way and you follow some of the right lessons, it can be, you know, you can be very, very, very powerful. Um, and he gives some brilliant insights on on how to create wealth in what he calls a sort of an ecosystem, which is a brilliant term, I think, for this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, Daniel's company, Dent, has been running for 15 years now, and they run accelerators across the world. And I think that's another message to be picked up today is about you know, the, the age that we're in now is to start thinking about being a global business or certainly how your business could serve, you know, anyone across the world. Mm, absolutely. And um, it gives a very interesting insight into how we pivoted from that, wasn't it, in terms of uh, being into aiming for sort of cities into mm. time zones. And uh, that gives you uh, a much bigger insight. Anyway, I don't want to steal any of Daniel's thunder. Why don't we have a listen to what Daniel has to say? Sure. Let's head on over now to the conversation with Daniel Priestley. Hey, Daniel, welcome to Wealth Talk. Thank you very much for having me on the show. No, very welcome, Daniel. Always a pleasure to speak to you. And um, there's a lot that I'd love to cover with you today, but I think the primary focus will be on looking at how you can really create an ecosystem of assets within your business. And um, I know you're familiar with our seven pillars model. And of course, your first book, KPI, you talk about you know the five P's and I think there's elements of business, intellectual property, joint ventures all rolled into that, which, of course, are the four entrepreneurial pillars that we talk about. Yeah, so it's a really good fit. Um, looking, at, um, you know, looking at the way that you guys have structured things, it's, it's kind of like if a red Ferrari drives past, a lot of people will say, oh, there's, look, there's a red Ferrari or a red sports car. So clearly we've noticed the same things from different angles. Yeah, definitely. So before we really dive into things, Daniel, for anyone who perhaps hasn't had the pleasure of, you know, reading your books, hearing you speak, would you mind just giving us a little bit of your background, your entrepreneurial story? Yeah, so I'm, I'm from Australia. Uh, I grew up on a place called the Sunshine Coast, um, which is as horrible as it sounds. It's just beaches and forests and uh, endless sunshine all the time. So I kind of did retirement living uh, before I started my career and then <laughs> did everything backwards. Um, but basically, at age 19, I dropped out of university, um, became employee number three or four uh, within the startup. The startup went really well. Um, uh, I worked for a, an exceptional entrepreneur 
who took us from an idea to six million in revenue and sixty employees uh, in under two years. Um, and that gave me an incredible opportunity to see what it's actually like to start a business and to be an entrepreneur uh, without taking any real risks other than, you know, kind of being involved in a startup. Um, and then two years in, I decided that I uh, wanted to go and do my own startup. Uh, so I was 21, 22 years old. <clears throat> I left that business, started my own, um, and it also became a very fast growth startup. So I'd learned a lot in my uh, in my time with John. Um, and I built a business that went from zero to about 10.7 million in sales uh, in about three or four years. So uh, before the age of 25, we were up to about a million a month in, in revenue. Um, and, uh, and it was just a great fast roller coaster. Uh, fast forward a few years, I ended up moving to London um, and, um, and, and getting out of that business and basically launching a business accelerator. So I started a business accelerator called the Key Person of Influence Accelerator. And um, uh, in, in a company called Dent Global, uh, we now have uh, 3,000 clients globally. We have offices in Toronto, Sing uh, Sydney, London. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we, we have a great time incubating and accelerating entrepreneurs uh, all over the world. Uh, and then in amongst that, I wrote uh, four books on entrepreneurship based on the lessons that I was learning. Yeah. And having fun along the way, which I know is one of your key values as well. Been having a lot of fun along the way, and also in the last six or six years, been having three children under six, so having a lot of sleepless nights as well. Yeah, yeah. And you talk often, Daniel, about the entrepreneur's journey. Um, of course, it's vital to really know kind of where you're going from the beginning, and to understand that there's different different stages, as you eloquently put in your entrepreneurial model. So, can you maybe just give people an idea of of what those are? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, people always ask the question, if you could go back and give your younger self some advice, what advice would you give? And that question is based on the idea that over time, over decades, we, we form a, a view of the world, a, a more complete view of the world, a map, I guess you'd say. And if only you had the map sooner, you'd do better in life. So entrepreneurship is a little bit like that. And I've, I've been really fortunate when you work with 3,000 entrepreneurs ranging from early stage startups right up into the billions of revenue, um, you actually get a very clear picture of what the map ends up looking like. Um, and, and therefore, it's a lot easier to, to build businesses very rapidly, multi-million pound businesses very, very rapidly. Um, so there's a few key stages. There's obviously the startup phase where you're getting the concept right and you're doing validation there's a phase called the wilderness, which is first contact with the marketplace to see if your ideas survive. Um, then there's the boutique phase, which is three to 12 employees or three to 12 people on the team. Um, and what you're trying to do is establish a boutique that punches well above its weight. You, you want a boutique where three to 12 people are really kind of making some waves and disrupting things and gaining influence. Um, if you can get up to 12 people, you enter a very difficult phase, which is crossing the desert. Uh, and the desert I describe as too big to be small, too small to be big. And it's between 13 and 40 people. And this is a difficult phase where the business is no longer this kind of self-managing small boutique, but it's also not ready to have a leadership team and, you know, a, 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 you know kind of um, uh, expensive software and expensive offices and all the kind of things that you need to run a, a proper business, a bigger business. So you're kind of in this weird no man's land of not small, not big, uh, from 13 to 40 people, which doesn't sound like a big jump, but actually when you're in it, it's a huge jump that lasts a couple of years often. Um, and then 
you you then uh, basically enter a new uh, phase of business, which is scaling from about 40 to 120 people, um, where there's another little desert in there as well, where, where you kind of have to uh, go through it again. But um, essentially, there's these key phases uh, that you go through. And if you don't know these phases, some of sometimes the horrible thing that can happen is that you can have a wonderful business that's just doing so well at 12 people. And then you go 13, 14, 15, 16 people, you get up to 16 before you realize that you actually needed to do a lot more planning than you thought um, in order to go past 12. So those kind of things uh, kind of creep in. And when you know the map, you know what to expect. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And you've been saying, Daniel, for at least the last five years that there's a big wave coming and that entrepreneurs need to start paddling and be ready for this. Now, we're just coming out of obviously the coronavirus period. It's the end of June now we're recording this. And would you say this wave has now arrived? Uh, Coronavirus was the shock. Um, In fact, there's been several shocks in the 2020s. We started in January with um, the prospect of World War III and then we had the Australian fires. Um, There's been all sorts of very strange, um, you know, kind of things that were going on in, in the 2020s. But then coronavirus was that global shock to the system. Um, it's kind of like if you saw a house that is full of barrels of petrol, um, you might not know exactly what's going to set them on fire, but um, but you know that it's probably going to set on fire eventually. <laughs> um, so what I saw five years ago, um, there's a number there's a number of fundamental shifts that um, dictate the future is going to be uh, turbulent or di- you know different. Um, and that it'll take a shock to set it all off. Um, I don't know what the shock is going to be, but there will be a shock. And I kind of knew it would happen around the 2020s where, um, you know, where something would kick it all off. So the the way um, if we can kind of sideline and then I'll come back to the question if that's all right. Um, the, the way you can see into the future, there's two great tools for seeing into the future. Um, and the first tool is demographics. So when you understand that there are pockets of the population that are very big, um, large groups within the population, one of them is the baby boomers and one of them is the millennials. So um, the rule with demographics is that people roughly do predictable things at predictable ages in their life. So in your 20s, it's fairly predictable that you're going to be fairly self-centred, setting yourself up. You'll probably be into music, going out partying, meeting someone new, you know, all of those things are predictable in your 20s. In your 30s, it moves more into family, you know, having a wedding perhaps, um, getting your first house, maybe having your first child. Um, And then in your 40s, it's very much focused around career and earning as much as you can, paying for those school fees perhaps or getting a bigger house and, and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So one of the things that I knew would happen is that the vast majority of baby boomers will be in their 70s or be turning 70 in the 2020s. Um, it starts off uh, in a, in, you know, it starts off in 2016, but then it really explodes from 2020 onwards that the vast majority of baby boomers, that big generation that gave us the Beatlemania and, you know, kind of all sorts of trends is going to be moving into 70 plus. Now at 70 plus, people sell down their assets they, um, they, they get rid of big homes and get smaller homes. They go traveling. They become obsessed with healthcare, early diagnosis. Um, all of those kind of things are, are normal for someone in their 70s. 
Um, they, they're very focused about spending time with family and grandkids and, and enjoying healthful years. So that's, um, you know, that's a huge percentage of the population moving into that. The millennials moving into career focus, looking for putting down some roots, not traveling so many crazy, you know, so much crazy time and, and just being more focused on family and career and getting really focused. Um, you know, so those things, I knew those were happening. I know the millennials are massively in debt though. Um, more so than any other generation in history. Um, I know that property prices are multiples higher um, than the baby boomers paid for their properties. So percentage of revenue, uh, percentage of property price versus um, income um, is out of whack. So those things are demographic trends that you can draw upon. Um, And then the second crystal ball that you have into the future is um, technology. And the rule with technology for understanding what's going to happen next is is the S-curve. And essentially, um, that when a technology hits about uh, 20% adoption, it's halfway to 80% adoption. (laughs) So so that you can find technologies that have kind of gone up to about 20% market penetration and you'll start to see that they really take off um, so that you can kind of have a look at what's going on and... Um, and look for the disruptive trends that are that are happening. Um, and there are certain big technologies that are deliberately pushed and rolled out. So every ten year we every ten years we get a different generation of phone uh, technology. So four G was rolled out in twenty ten, three G was rolled out in two thousands, two G was in the nineties. So essentially, we were due for five G technology, which is an order of magnitude faster and more advanced than four G. Um, you know, and facilitates all sorts of, you know, transformational technology and automation. So all of that was converging upon the 2020s, um, the demographic trends and the technology trends, um, which is why I was describing one hell of a wave is coming. Um, It's going to be massively disrupted. Now, in answer to your question, it's only just arrived. So um, so you're you're either going to be surfing this wave or being dumped by this wave for several years. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, Daniel, we've spoken previously in the past, um, you know, with Escape the Rat Race and the shift from employee to entrepreneur. So would you say now more than ever, certainly the millennials, right, I'm sure are thinking more about being business owners, you know, straight Mm -hmm. out of school, then they're not going through that traditional education system that the older generations have done. But even obviously people, you know, in their middle ages are now looking at the security that a job can provide and, and obviously being quite worried about that. And, and looking at other opportunities and, and how can you make that shift over to a business owner, start thinking like an entrepreneur? Um, are you seeing that shift just accelerating as well? It's definitely accelerating. And my first book was Entrepreneur Revolution, which was around, you know, the fact that we're all going to end up as entrepreneurs and we're all going to have to um, make that shift. So entrepreneurship has always been really hard and difficult and terrible um, and a slap in the face and a punch in the nose. And risky and um, exhausting and all of those kind of things. Um, but it, it's always had a higher potential for upside. It's always had the potential for freedom and the potential for um, abundance and, uh, and, you know, and creativity and all of that baked into it. Um, the problem was that up until recently, there was an extremely good alternative to entrepreneurship. So, um, you had to kind of weigh up, do I want to be an entrepreneur or do I want a good, stable, solid job that just pays the bills 
and you know I can I can get a decent mortgage. I can pay off the mortgage. I can take a holiday each year. Um, I've got stability. I know that my job is going to be around for many years. So essentially, people had to weigh up the two options. Um, and in many cases, for for really rational reasons, people would choose to have a good job. Um, however. Uh, as we've gotten further and further away from that reality being true for many people, there's hardly anyone who would describe their job in those terms uh, anymore. Um, you know, even when we hear about these concepts of full employment, someone who's driving an Uber uh, on, you know, on an effective rate of eight pounds an hour is classed as having full employment and you know, a full-time job. Um, that is not someone who's got, uh, you know, job security or anything like that. So, um, because of the, the because of weighing up the two options and weighing up the alternative, there is no real alternative now. Like you have to be in, if you want any chance of owning a home, if you want any chance of having fun and freedom, and making the most of the times that we're in, and the ability to kind of change and pivot and and get the most out of life, you know, most rational people are saying, well, you know, there's really no choice. I need to kind of either be on an entrepreneurial team. Um, where I'm, I'm kind of bought in and I've got equity or I've got an opportunity um, or I need to go and start my own. But, um, you know, but there is no kind of big, stable, safe job waiting in the wings. Yeah, and that, that's such a key point. I remember you, you mentioned that before to me is that one of the most, I guess, sensible ideas of when you're thinking about making that shift is not to just suddenly go out there on your own and say, hey, you know, I'm going to start up my new venture, but it's to take that step into a team of others who have already got some of that traction experience. Um, and I've experienced that myself, right? It just makes such a difference. It's such a better way of approaching things, isn't it? Yeah, there's 40,000 companies in the UK that are fast growing, already got a small team. Um, you know, they've they've got traction. They're winning awards. Um, they they're they're ready for scale. They're they're ready. They're classed as being scale up ready, um, and they're they're already got traction and they're growing. Um, one of the best things you could possibly do is get yourself onto one of those teams for two years at a minimum, um, where you'll actually have an experience of. It's kind of like. You know, if you wanted to play tennis, playing tennis with a professional tennis player for a couple of years is probably going to be the thing that totally gets you a great game. Yeah. Now, passion is important, but I know listening to uh, 24 Assets, uh, one of your great books as well, Daniel, you talk about, obviously, within a business, you can create an, an ecosystem um, of products and, um, and different IP, really, I guess, um, which just gives you that. I guess, peace of mind, security, allows you to grow. And a key thing that we talk about in Wealth Builders is recurring income. Um, because otherwise, you're not really you know, getting out of that time for money trap if you're not having assets within your business that can generate that recurring income. So can we look perhaps at some of the different ways that you can start to build that ecosystem? And I know you've got different categories as well within those 24. Yeah, so um, the term recurring re income is uh, is describing the the byproduct of an asset. Um, so this it's this recurring income is the symptom of owning an asset. Um, it's what it's what accidentally happens after owning an asset. So if you own a big house and you rent it out, you've got recurring income. If you write a, a book that sells every year and it's a perennial bestseller, then you have recurring income because you created an IP asset. So recurring income is the um, is the output. It's the symptom of of an asset. 
Um, an asset is anything that would still retain its value if you weren't around, if you were paying very little attention to it. Um, and what we need to look at now is a new class of assets. So we need to look in, we look we need to look at this new class of asset called digital assets. So in the agricultural age, the number one type of asset was farming land, um, and then industrial age came along, and farming land was less important. And it was actually industrial land, um, industrial factories, actually, that was the primary asset, that if you could organise labour under one roof, then that was the number one asset. Um, in fact, owning a mill, owning machinery, owning a sewing factory uh, would be a much better thing than owning land. And it might only take up a very small amount of land. Um, and then as we move from the industrial age into the digital age, we need to own digital assets. Um, so it almost doesn't matter whether you own a factory anymore it matters that you own the brand. Um, so you look at businesses like Nike, they don't own factories. They, they outsource to different factories. They own the brand. They own the soft assets. So um, the new assets, it still follows the same rule that an asset is something that would provide value if you weren't around um, or looking after it. But think about things like this. Um, a database, let's say you've got 100,000 names who know who you are and open your emails. That's one hell of a, a digital asset. Um, if you said that you have, uh, if you've won a really difficult award, uh, let's, you know, at an extreme level, an Olympic gold medal, um, that award places you as someone who is, who has a soft asset for life, for the rest of your life, um, which is about excellence and achievement at the highest level. So that asset will continually bring you opportunities. Um, because you're an Olympic gold medalist. But in business, there are all sorts of awards that have that same impact, and that is actually an asset. An award is an asset. Um, uh, let's say you've got an incredible culture where people would love to come and work in your organisation because of the type of workplace that you run. Um, that's an asset. Uh, it's, a, it's a different kind of asset that it's hard for us to think about it through our industrial brain. Industrial, we, you know, We've all grown up in the industrial age, and now we're living in the digital age. But having a workplace culture that attracts highly talented and skilled people uh, is, a, is an incredible asset. So what we need to do is build this ecosystem of assets. Um, often they're digital assets. We formalize them into media, software, and intellectual property. And once you formalize them into media, software, and intellectual property, you suddenly have this ability to, to, to have a business that takes on a life of its own. Mm. And you have a scorecard as well um, for 24 assets, don't you? So if someone's listening now, if they're an existing business owner and they're thinking, well, where do I begin, right? How do I turn from my kind of traditional business to start thinking? Yeah. The scorecard is probably a good place. 24assets.com yeah. is a great place because there are 24 of these assets and it scores you as to what you've got, but also gives you a description of each of the 24 assets. Like what are some of the things you could go off and build? Yeah. And someone who hasn't started a business yet, uh, uh, any of those assets, ones that you would say are absolute essentials that you need to have in place almost as your rocks, your foundation? For someone who's not started a business, we don't get them thinking about assets too soon. We think about um, influence first. So the ability to go out and actually have um, the, the ability to make some sales, the ability to um, you know, recruit one or two people onto the team. Um, but it's kind of like the gears in the car. If you start your car in fourth gear um, because you've seen someone driving really fast in fourth gear, uh, you'll stall your engine. You actually need to start off in first gear. So first gear we talk about is having a good concept, knowing who your audience is and being able to go and attract the audience and get their attention. 
uh, putting together a great offer that people want to buy and that really speaks to their needs and their wants and then being able to sell it, you know, actually sit down and have a face-to-face sales meeting and, and, or a Zoom sales meeting and, and actually make a sale. Those are the first four things. And essentially, one of the dangerous things you could do in the early stages is try to formalise assets too soon um, and, uh, and you're formalising the wrong assets. You, you know, you, you, you're, or you're spending all your time and all your money on stuff that pays off over years when you haven't even proven whether the business can last for weeks. Yeah, so staying lean at the beginning. Staying very lean at the beginning, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, I guess one of the assets you've touched on there, Daniel, is, is writing a book. You've written, well, seen a new book even on your Facebook feed now coming with the, uh, the, the Entrepreneurial Kids, which looks really interesting. But how many books in total so far for you? I've written four main books in the series, in the Entrepreneur Journey series, and I've co-authored three books um, where, uh, where I've worked with a co-author to, to kind of produce a book, which is mm. how, to, how to Raise Entrepreneurial Kids is with Jodie Cook. Um, so the two of us are working on that together. Yeah, well, this is a topic that we've we've touched on many times, Daniel. And it's always been I found it curious because I've heard you know many very influential business owners, entrepreneurs, um, you know, wanting to make a big change and shake up the educational system. I've never seen it kind of really take grip, though. Um, why do you think that is, and uh, how how can this change, and how can entrepreneurs be the change of this? Yeah, well, you've got to re- remember the educational system goes back to uh, the 1800s. So, um, changing uh, the direction of a you know of a steam uh, ship, uh, a massive you know freight train or something like that is is uh, very difficult. Um, no one person is going to do it based on desire or or um, even just seeing quite clearly that it needs to change. It's it's a one hell of a moving object. Um, so it's going to take you know decades to change an educational system in a meaningful way, um, but it does have to change, and there has to be changes. But I re- look, I really think that change begins with parents. You know, parents um, have to get in there and you know become coaches and mentors to their kids, and um, or at least get them in front of coaches and mentors. Uh, and it's important. The distinction about that book is that it's not about creating entrepreneur uh, kids who are entrepreneurs. It's about creating entrepreneurial kids and there's a slight distinction. We're not trying to push kids into business or get them to have the stress and the pressure and the obligations that go along with business, but it's just having an entrepreneurial mindset and having an entrepreneurial awareness, um, having some kind of, uh, some of the some of the entrepreneurial principles like being able to pivot or spot an opportunity or make a good pitch. Um, you know, those are those kind of skills that are going to be you know, built and be very valuable uh, later in life. But having a good pitch could be pitching for a puppy. You know, you might want a dog. Um, so rather than just saying yes, you know, getting your kids to put together a pitch presentation, getting them to forecast forward and using words like, can you do a forecast of the next two years as to who's going to walk the dog and who's going to look after the dog and all those kind of things. Can we use PowerPoint or Keynote to actually put together a presentation around this and then can you sit us down and actually take us through the presentation so that we understand what it is that you want and why that would add value to the family. So <clears throat> in built in wanting a dog is an opportunity to create a pitch deck um, and that's, a, uh, that's an entrepreneurial skill. Now, it's not forcing a child to be entrepreneurial. It's not forcing them into business, but it's giving them an entrepreneurial skill. Yeah, I dare say the children teaching the parent a few things along the way as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it's funny. Creating, creating a TikTok account. 
during the lockdown period, of course, it's always been an enforced homeschooling for many parents. So, you know, the uh, I guess this is something that was already rapidly growing is homeschooling and, and maybe more so now after this enforced period. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of parents are discovering that there's all sorts of resources that they had no idea were available, um, you know, Khan Academy and certain apps. And there's actually um, the other thing that's incredible at the moment is that school teachers are so poorly paid for what they do that it only takes three or four families to put in a small amount of money and they can actually match or improve um, you know, a school teacher's pay and they can, you know, they can end up with uh, with a very good homeschooling situation. Yeah. So Daniel, I guess just to kind of round off the conversation we've had today about, you know, looking at the business pillar, which is obviously one of our seven pillars of wealth. And then we've talked about within the business pillar, there being this ecosystem of assets as well. Mm. With regards to business um, over the next five years, um, where where do you where do you see your business going? Where are the kind of directions that you're getting excited about now? Yeah, so we um, so in the next five years, as I've described, there's a wave, and you're either surfing it or you're getting dumped by it. So surfing it is about um, having a vision for the future, um, and then reverse engineering that fu- uh, that vision and reverse engineering that future, and it's about embracing the times that we're in. So it's about embracing technology and trends um, and not being stuck on the way we did things in the 2010s or the 20, you know, 2000s, but actually being kind of like curious and open to how things might change for the better. Um, so, uh, you know, in the 2010s, we were obsessed with the idea of building a business in 20 cities and we we're up to about seven or eight or not. We we're up to eight, I think, when, um, uh, when COVID hit and it was this kind of global, you know, pandemic and suddenly all eight cities you know, globally, we're rethinking that model. And then we realized, hey, wait a second, a lot of the ideas that we had in the 2010s about how we might build this business are no longer valid, or there's a better option. So we moved to a time zone model, where we actually said, we're just going to have three consolidated offices that cover the three major time zones. And we're going to deliver the entrepreneurial experience and the IP uh, on the time zone using all the tools and technology and resources available. And we're going to bring together several technologies that creates an exciting um, environment for someone to really learn and develop their business. So within three months, we made the shift uh, to from eight cities back to three time zones. Um, and, um, you know, we, I'm, we're, we're loving it. It's a much better model. We're, our business has, has actually grown substantially as a result. We've reorganized our team structure around that. Um, the other thing that excites me um, going forward is uh, data. So, you know, the, the, the way you can use data to create incredibly personalized experiences and, you know, you don't have to do one size fits all um, or even the closest size fits all. You can have a perfect a solution that fits each person using if you've got enough data and and the ability to process that. Um, So, for example, you mentioned the scorecard. Uh, 24 Assets uh, asks a series of questions and then we can custom build uh, a solution for someone based on how they answer those questions. We can actually custom build their business growth journey uh, so that they're doing the right thing at the right time. Um, So the use of data and the ability to process that data is really exciting. I've just co-founded a new company called ScoreApp that allows companies to actually harness a lot more data through um, running scorecards and quizzes with their clients, then process that data and have more powerful conversations with, uh, with their customers as a result. 
Yeah. And the important thing not to forget with all of this technology is business at the end of the day is person to person. And so this data is, you know, just helping you to really understand your customer and serve them better. Think about it like this. The reason your best friend is your best friend is because you have a lot of data on them. Um, So it's, you know, the fact that you have a really close relationship is a data uh, problem. And then the way you utilize that data and the way you express that data back to people, but you're essentially, it's very hard to be best friends with someone if you have no data on them, if you don't know what their favorite food is or their favorite music or their, um, or that joke that we told a year ago, that's still funny. You know, if you don't have that data, then it's very hard to be a best friend. So the, when, when companies think about data and they use it as a way to get further away from customers and kind of like put a barrier in between people then they're doing the completely wrong thing. The purpose of data is intimacy. It's the ability to say the exact right thing at the right time. It's the ability to provide the right solution that's perfectly fitted. Um, it's the ability to be a much closer ally um, as opposed to uh, you know kind of being a one-size-fits-all. Yeah. We've provided some great insights today, Daniel, and you always do within your Facebook group as well. The Oversubscribe, Reset and Reinvent is a great group. So anyone who isn't in there, I definitely highly encourage you to go and join that. But where else can people head to, Daniel, to kind of follow you and find out what else you've got going on? Most people uh, read the books. Um, There's Entrepreneur Revolution and then Key Person of Influence, Oversubscribed and uh, 24 Assets. Uh, If anyone wants to drop our office an email, we can actually just send you a free copy of Key Person of Influence because we we have that as one of our marketing promotions and kind of just happy to give it out. Um, So info at dent.global. Uh, and just say, I'd, I'd really like a, a book, please. And our team will pick that up. And uh, if you give us the mailing address, then we can send it straight out. Um, yeah. Cool. No, that's awesome. Thank you for that. And thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure speaking with you again today, Daniel. Likewise, Christian. Thanks for having me. So very interesting there. And Daniel, certainly in his book, 24 Assets, talks about obviously the ecosystem that you can create within a business. And, um, and of course, we have our own seven pillars model. So maybe we can touch on Kevin, you know, some of the differences between, I guess, some of those assets that maybe sit within a business or under the IP pillar, as we refer to them. Mm. Well, first of all, I'd like to acknowledge, I think it's a great idea to be encouraging business owners to be thinking about the power of some of the things that maybe they'll take for granted in their business and referring to them as an ecosystem it's quite powerful because there's an interdependency, isn't there, on things like, you know, your brand, your database, awards you could you could make, the culture of your company, software, IP, scorecards. You know, he, he raises really, I think, what a, a very insightful point that in the modern technological age, you can create the potential for more assets. And I think I'm going to make a difference. So, you know, Daniel said at the beginning um, that, you know, his connection with wealth builders is we see the same things from slightly different angles. So it's always good. And I love the fact that people have different angles because the insights you get from people with a slight twist, a slight take on things can help you decide what's right for you. So where Daniel, I agree is on this concept of the ecosystem. I think it's a very good, uh, where perhaps, you know, we might have a slight difference, not of opinion, but just of the angle, is many of the things that he refers to 
Um, for example, he says um, that recurring income is a byproduct of owning assets. And I would say that's true, but for many people, they've got the potential of the asset. In other words, they might own an asset or they might have the potential to create an asset, but they fail to capitalize on it. So it turns from a latent asset into an income-generating asset. You've got to do something with it. You see the difference, Chris? You could have a database, but you could fail to capitalize on it because you don't nurture it well. You know, you could have um, very strong software, but you fail to create the niche market that develops into a recurring income program. You could have great relationships with clients, but you don't craft a membership or a proposal that delivers the value back to the business in that recurring way. So I think we're saying the same things, but uh, I just delved a little bit deeper into that. And I see many people undervalue their assets. And we know this from the conventional pillars, don't we? You know, people undervalue their home, they undervalue their pension, they undervalue their IP for sure. So, so many examples where people could own an asset, but they fail to turn it into the recurring income that is truly wealth building. Yeah. And we're actually going through that very stage with our members in the Seven Steps to Wealth program at the moment is looking at a very distinction between those three traditional assets, which are the home capacity, pensions, investments, and the switch over to the four entrepreneurial assets. And, um, you know, I guess Daniel was talking with a focus more on the business and IP pillars today. But I know in your presentations, Kevin, you you have a slide which often shows business owners very, very focused on just their business, but then you zoom out and actually show all seven pillars together. And it's really, you know, you're in the business of wealth, which is what you say often. Mm. And I think what Daniel's done actually is helped me um, because, you know, I talk about most business owners, like my dad, had tunnel vision. You know, their, their eyes are, you know, focused squarely on the day-to-day of what happens inside their business. And I guess that's the same with people in jobs, right? They, they're they committed to that time, so their head's down. They're, they're putting their effort into uh, creating whatever they can in their business and in their job. But often that sort of blinkered look, that tunnel vision, uh, fails to spot the weakness in the trap that lies therein, which is this trading time for money or trading activities for money. You know, it can be quite a devastating outcome when something goes wrong. And we know that financial independence means the independence from a single source of income, which is why we believe so passionately in creating multiple streams of recurring income. But I think what Daniel's done is actually helped me think a little more about business owners and say, well, okay, I'm trying to get them to focus on their world outside of the business and almost see their wealth as their business, not the activity of the business itself. But what Daniel's saying, I think, is, well, dive further into the business and see if you can create powerful assets inside the business so the business itself can create streams of income for you. And I think that's a very powerful distinction. Yeah, and... um one thing that ban- uh, Daniel spoke about is is really having that map. He talked about the distinct stages that every 
business goes through beginning with the startup where you really just you've got an idea and then moving into wilderness where you're testing and validating that idea and then the boutique stage which is between three and 12 people and often that's where many businesses you know are happy to stay because you can create a pretty good lifestyle at that without without then moving on to that massive performance stage of course yeah i mean it's interesting to show a map and i think he makes a great point that you know a map or a plan is always better than randomly kind of arriving at things. And what my experience is with maps, certainly on the Wealth Builder map that we've created, Chris, the seven steps to wealth, is the sooner you get the map, the better it is. You know, it's almost like you're in wealth, you're charting new territory. Well, it's hard to do that. Why not just follow a path that's already been laid down? So it's just so much easier to do it that way. Uh, and I think he's making some great distinctions about thinking about where you are in your business and, and kind of understanding that you're moving from one path to another, you know, or one level to another rather. And that whenever you move to another level, if you don't understand it, whatever got you successful at level A is not likely to get you to level uh, the success at level B. So, you know, obviously I'm, uh, don't know the language as clearly as Daniel does for his own uh, distinctions there, but but good ones aren't they really? So if you want to scale it, you you're going to have to let go of a lot more in order to create the power for scale. Whereas in the boutique style of business, you know you're much more focused about your lifestyle, and we spend a lot of time at wealth builders helping directors understand how they can draw money from that their business, the DRAW that I spoke about on the last podcast, Chris the director's pension, relevant life, building assets outside of the business and uh, well-being. So many ways that a boutique business owner can create a fabulous lifestyle with much of it coming from uh, basically tax deductions. So, you know, very powerful thing there. But of course, if you then want to scale it, you know, you've got to think outside of your lifestyle. And maybe that's when you get to life-changing sums of money when you can sell your business for multi multi millions and uh, we've definitely seen that uh, but it takes a different uh, process altogether doesn't it mm. and one of the things i didn't actually touch on with daniel but i know he's uh, a big fan of is wealth dynamics uh talked about wealth dynamics a lot and um for anyone who's you know looking at either growing or, or even getting into business we talked about that transition of so many people who are employed now having to almost think entrepreneurially if they really want to have you know, the success and the wealth that, that they desire and knowing your wealth dynamic, knowing where your value is created and how you can deliver that to be in flow is, is one of the best ways. And so uh, Daniel talked again about making that shift, joining an entrepreneurial team, being surrounded by like-minded people. And of course, we say that connection is, you know, one of the key elements of wealth building. Nicely said, Chris. And um, I think in addition to that, Daniel focuses a lot there, didn't he, on the concept of adding value wherever you are. You know, in the way that I would frame that is, and I think he talked about, you know, one of the best things you could do is go and work for a business for a couple of years but rather than take the risk at the beginning. And I think that's very powerful. I think from our perspective at Wealth Builders, we, we would say that everybody should focus on being a value creator, whether you're an employee or in business and seek to almost imagine you're on a team like a sports person, you know, and play to the best of your ability on a team. 
until it's logical then for you to move on to the next team. And I love the example of the value creation for kids, <laughs> pitching for a dog. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I got pitched for a dog with, with my kids and, uh, I said no, but everybody else said yes. So I got, I voted. <laughs> yeah. You, you're pleased you made that decision now. Oh, absolutely. You? you know, I love, I love our dog now and, um, you know, I'm a keen uh, dog walker at the weekend with him and love it, you know, but, uh, it, originally, you know, I saw the problems, you know, somebody else is going to end up doing it, not the kids. And as it happens, that's exactly what happened. But, you know, my wife loves it and I love it and, and the kids love him. So, uh, no, it's, it's a very powerful thing though, uh, to create value and to give young people the skill to be thinking about value creation, um, at whatever level they are. And I think it's a, a good skill to have in life, um, irrespective of where you try, try to create your value. Mm. And of course, there's so much more value within Daniel's books. So for anyone listening now who you know hasn't read any of those books or you know maybe seen some other videos that Daniel does regularly online, definitely do go and check those out. He talks about one of the scorecards, 24assets.com. And um, he offered very kindly as well, a copy of his book, uh, KPI for anyone. So um, the email address, if anyone didn't catch that, is info at dent.global. Yeah, I'm sure you can put a link um, in the show notes, Chris, because, you know, KPI is a seminal book. You know, it's a great, great book, key person of influence. And that focuses very much on, you know, creating almost a stream of assets in your personal uh, approach, you know, in terms of being able to create partnerships, to be able to pitch, to be able to create a product, you know, a whole range of different things that he calls the five P's in there. Um, and a great book. And I would encourage anybody who wants to add value in the world to read that book. Well, it feels like we've touched on a subject today, which there's, there's more that we can talk about. I'm sure we can uh, invite some more guests to, uh, you know, pull out obviously that value that's often hidden right under our noses, whether that's in a business or just in our life in general. So uh, it's been a good conversation today, Kevin. Thank you. No problem, Chris. And until the next time we do a podcast, see ya. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget that we are constantly updating our resources inside the Wealth Builders membership site to help you create, build and protect your wealth. Head over to wealthbuilders.co.uk slash membership right now for free access. That's wealthbuilders.co.uk slash membership.